Let's, let's turn together in our Bibles to Genesis 2. Uh, if you have a church Bible that's found on page 2, if you don't have a church Bible, it probably still is on page 2, just guessing. Uh, I do find that amusing. I don't know why. Uh, it's also printed in your service sheets for, for your convenience. Genesis 2, uh, we're continuing uh, our look at the early chapters of Genesis. We're going to go through Genesis uh, 11. Uh, up until Christmas time, and then we'll, we'll take a break at Christmas uh, for a, a Christmas series, uh, an Advent series. Uh, Genesis 2, I should also add, um, I always like to, to get this on the recording in case my presbytery is listening, but um, there are no original thoughts. Uh, after 2,000 years uh, or more, in the case of Genesis, there's, there's nothing new uh, for me to, to add, and so I I do use uh, commentaries and, and different sources during the week uh, as I prepare for, the, for these sermons. Uh, two in particular that I'll, I'll use throughout the series, uh, one is by Derek Kidner, uh, the other is by uh, a guy from the States called Sidney Gradonis. Uh, and so if you, if you ever happen to pick those up and go, oh, this sounds like something Rob said, um, that's probably where, where I got it from. So just so we, you know, yeah, we, we ministers do lift from other sources. Uh, if I actually quote directly, you'll hear me quote directly. All right, uh, enough of, of my bibliography. Uh, let's go to Genesis 2, uh, beginning in verse 4 and reading to the end of the chapter. And again, this, this is God's word. It's, it's holy, inerrant, and infallible. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden." But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he could call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. 
And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forevermore. Uh, If you're going to be stranded on a desert island, and usually if you get stranded on a desert island, you don't see it coming. But let's pretend you you did see it coming. What what three things would you want to take with you? Uh, Obviously, a, a water supply would be helpful, wouldn't it? Uh, certainly food, that's two things. What would be the third thing that you feel like you just couldn't possibly live without? Well, creation speaks to the things that, that we just can't live without. It speaks to the, the things that define our humanity, the things that we can't uh, change about ourselves. Remember, again, this is uh, the, the Lord writing this through Moses his prophet, to, to a people who were wandering in the wilderness. These were the, the truths that God felt uh, his people, who had just been freed from slavery, needed to know about themselves. Last week in chapter 1 of Genesis, we saw humanity presented as, as the climax of creation, that, that final brushstroke of the artist, the piece that completed the whole. This morning we see that, that underlined as uh, humanity is presented as, as the center of creation. Everything uh, else in the account revolves around uh, the first man. Along with that, we learn some essential things about ourselves and how we were created to live and to act. We learn about God as well, don't we? But these are the things that are, are essential to life. These are things that that are essential to our joy and to our meaning and purpose. And I want to suggest to us that there are are really three things that we hear described in these verses that point us to to who we fundamentally are and what our purpose in life is. So three things for us to see this morning. First of all, that we were formed and fashioned by the hand of God. Secondly, we see the law and its purpose. And third, we see the purpose of the marital bond. So first let's see that that we were formed and fashioned by the hand of God and why that matters so much. We actually have a a remarkable description of of the making and forming of Adam, don't we? The first man. We're told uh, that that, that first the earth was, was formed and made, but it wasn't yet complete, was it? It's not the world that we know today. There was a, a barren nature to it. Uh, it hadn't yet had seasons. The climate hadn't been fully formed. It wasn't, it wasn't like it is right now. And then, though, God made man. Look back at 7 through 9. Listen to how, again to how he, he uh, uh, describes this. It says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In some ways, uh, 
This account parallels chapter 1, but zooming in on the details. You'll recall from chapter 1 that, that we're, we're told God made man in his image, after, after his likeness. And today we, we hear that again, but it's, it's communicated in a slightly different way, isn't it? We feel the intimacy of the creation of man here. That God formed him from, from the dust of the ground. And there's a, there's a tenderness to that, isn't there? There's a carefulness. There's a, there's a fragility to the man. There's a real intimacy to how God, how God made him. When God made man, he, he actually reached in. He got his hands dirty, if you will. He reached down into the world and he, he formed and fashioned our forebear. But he didn't stop there. He actually breathed into him the, the breath of God. The, the breath of life in his lungs came from God himself. That's what, that's what animated him. That's what gave him life. And there's no other creature that was created this way. We can, we can see God's uh, incredible wisdom and cre- creativity in other creatures, can't we? We can see his, his power demonstrated in, in his calling them into existence. But you and I are, are different from those other creatures, aren't we? We carry something inside ourselves that no other creature can claim. No other creature has even the, the ability to, to claim. They don't share our awareness. That's because God made us in his image. That is, he made us to know him and to be known by him and to find our deepest delight in him, even as he delights in us as creatures. Not only that, but did you hear how he created with our well-being in mind? He created with our well-being in mind. Did you notice that? God made a garden, and you know, the, the earth is still feels quite chaotic, doesn't it? Uh, when, when we first, uh, the, in the first couple of, of verses that we read. And so what does God do? He, he plants a garden. And in the garden, he, he has uh, all kinds of plants and trees to grow up so that, that, uh, that, w- that would be good for man to eat from. Your man didn't have, to, uh, didn't have to live in the wilderness. He didn't have to fear death because the presence of God was, was sufficient to provide for him and su- to sustain him. He could see that in, in something as mundane as, as the fruit tree in the garden. Do you think about that? Like every, every plant, every tree, the, the, every, every bit of fruit that, that the man would eat was a reminder of the, the unique love of God for him. It was created to, to sustain him. That should strike us. And what should be shouting out to us is, is the, the absolute utter dependence of this man of dust upon the God who formed him and created him. He created a unique world around him in which by God's providence and provision, this man could survive and he could thrive. That's actually quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? And when you think about uh, just uh, the rest of the solar system around us, our, all our human knowledge actually still points to this, this simple truth. You think about the solar system around us. Uh, what are we up to now? We, there were nine planets when I was a kid. I think we're down to eight now. Is that right? You think about that. And we're the only, this is the only planet that can sustain our life. When you think about the, the solar systems around our solar system that we keep discovering more and more about, there's no, there, there's no certainty that, that life can live on any of those planets or in any of those solar systems. There's possibilities, 
There's even, you know, statistical probabilities. But there's absolutely no certainty. So what Genesis tells us is that, that because God took special and unique care when he made our planet, we have life. All of our life is, is in the hand of God. Every, every breath we take is the breath of God. So God placed man in, in the garden. And then he next gave him a purpose, didn't he? Verse 15, what's he tell him to do? He says, uh, work and keep the garden. God's first calling on, on this man was to, to care for the creation because it was made for the glory of God and for the good of man. There's a number of things we should, we should take away from this that I, I hope is, is more significant than, than simply uh, Christians should be environmentally conscious. You know, some people read this and go, see, we should, we should recycle. I, I don't care if you recycle or not. Can I just say that? Uh, I know it's offensive to some of you, but, you know, recycle away. I, I don't mind. I, I do it. I don't think it's a bad thing. But I think we should see and appreciate the fact that, that God made you. And he made you fearfully and wonderfully. And he made you with purpose. He made you intimately. And in you is the, the same breath that was in our first father. We, we carry in ourselves the breath of God. We're his image bearers. And that's a fundamental truth that has to, to define our lives, doesn't it? And here's why this is so, so critical for us to get. And, and forgive my bluntness, but uh, it, it's critical for us to get. Because until we accept this, this truth about ourselves, that God made us unique, he made us in his image, until we accept that, we're never going to be more than just meat with a brain. And again, sorry for putting that so bluntly, but it's the, the fundamental lie at the heart of, 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 of many of the decisions that we make, both as individuals and, and as a society. We're just meat with brains. And as such, we should just obey the voice in our heads. And we should obey the feelings in our bodies. This is what I mean. This is, how, how, do we, how do we come up with something like, like the Tavistock Clinic? You know, the clinic where hundreds of children suffered mutilation in the name of gender reassignment to give them the, the bodies they thought and felt or, or more likely dad and mom thought or felt that they should have. You see, secularism says that we're just bodies. We're just meat with brains. It would never say it that way, but that's because it has to, to package the lies as something that's acceptable to the to the souls that deep down know the truth about ourselves, that we're more than just, than just our flesh. See, the problem of humanity comes from, from looking within ourselves, which is what we're told to do all the time, isn't it? I know that's a, a bit of an intense statement, but I think it's, it's actually central and foundational to, to the issues that, that we face as a society, often as individuals, and certainly that we, we face as a church in a secular society. We sometimes may think that, that the image of God in us may, means uh, that we, we have all we need inside ourselves. But in fact, it means just the opposite of that. The image of God in us, in a pure form, what we, what we see in this Genesis account, it actually points us outside of ourselves, doesn't it? It causes us to, to, to be dependent upon the source of that image to make us whole to explain who we are, to explain why we're here, to explain what we're meant to do 
with that breath of life that he breathed into us. You see, God didn't breathe the breath of life into man and then abandon him, did he? He didn't tell him, all right, you've got, you've got my image, now just, just listen to your heart. Rather, he, he placed them in the, the security of the garden and he gave him a purpose and he fellowshiped with the man. We, we hear that uh, even more clearly in chapter 3, that it was the custom of God to come and to walk with the man in the cool of the day. But even more than that, God planted in the garden uh, a reminder of man's dependence upon him. And that's what we actually see in our second point this morning. The second thing that we see this morning is, is the law of God and its purpose. So let's look back at, at verse 16 and 17. It says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden." But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, why would God hold back one fruit? You know, he made man uh, as, as head over all, every other, other creature. He's, he's supreme over all created things. He puts him in charge of caring for and filling and subduing the earth. So why does he hold back this one thing? And it's just, it's just a fruit, isn't it? You know? Maybe it was apricot, and he knew he just wouldn't like it. Uh, you know, I think actually it was the, the tree was a reminder of the frailty of man's existence. The tree would act as a, as a place that the man could, could keep coming back to in order to be reminded that even with his, his incredible powers and, 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 and his growing abilities, that there's still one who is, is greater than him. That's the God who made him. There are still some, some mysteries that he, he couldn't fathom, and that's, that's okay. As long as he has the God who understands everything. See, this is a reminder that we, he was a creature and that he was fragile. If he, if he ate of it, he would, he would die. He's a fragile creature. And some of the most beautiful things in the world are, are the most fragile, aren't they? If you go to the British Museum or... or to an art gallery, you'll see some beautiful and wonderful things, and they're they're going to be behind uh, thick, strong glass because they want you to to look at them, but they don't want you to touch them because they're beautiful and they're fragile, and they can easily shatter with a clumsy touch. Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would speak to the fragility of man, for all his his beauty and all the strength and all the the wonder of him that came from God, he's still incredibly fragile. Did you hear the, the warning in verse 17? What would happen if he ate the tree? He would die. He would surely die. You see, the only thing standing between, between man, this man and, and, uh, who was who good and, and made in God's image, and certain death, was actually God himself. That was the whole point. The single law is to, to remind the man that, that it, without God, without God filling in those, those gaps of knowledge, without God sustaining him and protecting him and, and setting boundaries for him, then he faced certain death. And that's, that's actually, in fact, still the point of the law today. God's law has always been good because it, it speaks to us of, of his character and it speaks to us of his power. 
And it speaks to us of our, of our limitations and, and who we're called to be and what we're called to do. And the, the purpose of this, this first law was to drive Adam to God to sustain his life, to trust him to know all the things that Adam didn't know, to trust him to, to provide for Adam through the creation. And the point of the law today is actually to drive us lawbreakers to Christ, to show us just how far short we are of the glory of God. It's to remind us that the, the only thing standing between us and death is still the God who made us, and that we're dependent on him not only to sustain our lives, but to, to save us for the ways we've fallen short, for the sins that we have actively committed, and even the sins we've unintentionally committed. The purpose of the law is to, to drive us to the one who's redeemed us in Christ Jesus. You see, the law is, is, of God is good because it, it reminds us of our dependence upon him as creatures. It reminds us that he formed us out of the dust. That the life we, that, that the life we breathe is the life that was breathed into us. And the law is this, this perfect rule for, for, for life and for happiness. But the obedience to the law no longer comes through innocence, but rather through the regeneration and renewal of the image of God in us through Christ and through faith in him. That's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? We'll look at it tonight in Ephesians. Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Adam was, was, was essentially dead when he was formed, wasn't he? He was just dust. So what did God do? He, he breathed the breath of life into him. And what God does in Christ Jesus, he, he once again breathes that breath of life into us. He reanimates us by his grace. Now the third thing we see this morning, and the last thing, is the purpose of the marital bond. And this is actually a sermon in itself. And you'll, you'll get a whole sermon on it uh, in, in one of the evening services coming up uh, as we work our way through uh, Ephesians. So I'm just going to give us a, a short overview here. Uh, the fact, though, that, that we see marriage here is, is actually a, a reminder of, of how central it is to our humanity. Now, hear what I'm saying here, not what I'm not. Uh, if you're single among us, and I know there's, there's many of us here this morning uh, who are single, don't hear me saying that you're incomplete until you're married. Don't, don't hear me saying that there's something wrong with you if you're not married. That's, that's not the case. You're, you're no less pleasing to God as a single person. What we see in this, this first marriage is that if we're going to, to enter into marriage, then we have to get it right. That there's certain boundaries, creational boundaries, that God made. He made marriage for our good. He made it to, to help us thrive. But we have to accept it in its creation context. We, we can't just make it up as we go along. So what we see here is that, that God created us for relationships, and in particular for for complementary relationships. Verse 18, God says, it's, it's not good for the man to be alone. So I'll make a helper fit for him. And he, he brings out every, every beast. Did you notice that? Every, every created thing, he, he brings it out before man. And then this, this almost uh, a coronation of man as, as ruler over creation. Uh, he, he, he brings every beast before him. And he names them. And they can't find a single one that's right to be the, the companion and complement 
to man. You know, he, he probably, Adam, I think, probably loved dogs. But the dog is not, was it the perfect, the perfect partner? You know, I probably would have liked a nice monkey, but, but you know what, it's not the right, the right compliment. I'm sure he rejected cats just right away, like they're not, yeah, not, not helpful, not helpful at all. None of them, though. But none of them. Even even the best ones, they weren't they weren't the right they weren't the right compliment to the man. So what does God do? God does something remarkable, doesn't He? Look back at verse twenty one and twenty two. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman, and brought her to the man. See, God made the, the woman as, as the unique match to the man. He took for her from the man's side and, and, and made her like the man, like the man he formed her, and, and, and presumably he breathed life into her. God made her unique and wonderful for the man. And Adam immediately recognized this, didn't he? Verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Moses, of course, uh, makes a comment on this, doesn't he? In 24 and 25, he explains uh, for the Israelites in the wilderness and for, for future generations of, of God's people and, and really for the whole world that this explains something fundamental about us, doesn't it? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, there's a lot we could say about this, and it uh, it will get said at some point. This morning, I just want to I just want to underline for us that that marriage is is not a social contract between two people. It isn't something people do because uh, they want to celebrate their relationship, and they just want to have a day where they feel like a princess. Marriage is, in fact, a, a solemn covenant that it was instituted by God, our creator at creation. And he put it in place for our good. Not just for the good of man, but, but the, the good of both. That's what we see here, isn't it? That man was, was created incomplete until he had uh, the woman. And the woman was created to be the unique companion that Adam longed for. This obviously speaks to, to many issues in our society. Things like, like gay marriage. I'm sitting all the hot button topics, right? Your your meat with brains, and now you know gay marriage. Uh, should we be for or against gay marriage? Well, we have to stand against it, don't we? Because we don't, we we not only don't see gay marriage uh, in scripture, we don't even see gay relationships as something acceptable to God. And that's not a a simple moral ruling. It's it's, it's fundamental to how we were made. It's part of the creation mandate. What we also don't see, though, are, are long-term heterosexual partnerships, do we? We see one man and one woman leaving their father and their mother and, and creating a, a new family together where the two are, are wholly known to one another. They're naked and they're unashamed. It would be easy for us to, to stop there, wouldn't it? But... Uh, I have to be hard on some of us in this room this morning as well. You know, we can easily take shots at, at gay marriage uh, or people living together, but, but we need to actually look at ourselves as well, don't we? 
we need to look at our own marriages or, or our expectations of marriage. And, and what I mean by this is we have to understand our, our roles in the marriage relationship, which we in the, the church often often get wrong. And we'll, we'll talk in detail about this uh, more in Ephesians in a few weeks' time. But, but let's just lay out the primer now. You know, men, God made you... Well, God made your, your present or future wife for you out of his great love for you and for her. And God expects you to, to treat her well. She's like you in that she uh, is bone of your bone and, and flesh of your flesh. When you take a wife, you, you become one flesh with her. And that, that has to inform how you, how you treat her. That has to inform uh, how, how you, you love her. Love her sacrificially. Listen to your wife. Why, why did God create, create her? She, he, he created her to be your helper, your confidant. She has wisdom that, that you don't have. Listen to her counsel. Be your head by setting an example of her, to, to her of, of patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. She isn't there as as an object for you to control. She's there as, as a precious gift. She's, she's the great jewel of your life. She's there for you to nurture, to care for, and to lead. And if you do this well, then, then she'll be a joy and a pleasure to you all your days. Show your wives and, and your children, for that matter, what it means to repent, because you're going to, you're going to get this wrong most days every day most hours of every day wives God God made you to, to compliment your husband to patiently submit to him as he as he leads and cares for you and as a as a husband I can promise you he's he's going to get this uh, he's, he's not going to get this right but that doesn't actually change your your calling to him just as it doesn't change his calling to you when you when you get your part wrong you're Love your husband, even when he's being kind of an idiot about something. Be patient with him, even if he isn't always fair or right. See, marriage is a, a beautiful and wonderful covenant relationship that, that God wrote into creation. And he wrote it into creation for our good as his creatures. And we should embrace it and do our best in it, knowing that, that we are fallen, as, as we'll see next week. And that requires us to be extra patient and extra intentional in, in how we treat our marriages. And it calls, calls us to repent. Nothing will, nothing will call you to repent quite like your marriage. I know this last point feels a bit out of place, but it should strike us that God places it in the creation account. The marriage between a man and a woman is, is, is fundamental to our, to our humanity. We can't ignore that. The things we're, we're given here this morning might not, might, might not all help us on a desert island, but they are meant to help us as we navigate uh, a barren, fallen world. <coughs> These are the things that, again, God gave to his people as they were wandering in, in the wilderness so that they would know who they are and what kind of people they were called out of slavery to be. So what do we need to know to, to make it in this world as is people wandering? We need to remember who we are. That we're people that, that are made in God's image. 
who breathe his breath, that we're dependent upon him and our frailty. We need to remember that God has given us a, a rule of law to show us our need of him and to, to drive us to Christ Jesus as our Savior. We need to remember that God has, has made us for relationships, for marriage between a man and a woman. And these things aren't meant to make uh, life easier. Rather, they're meant to, to cause us to understand ourselves, to see our need of being made right with God in Christ, and to grow in our dependence upon his grace each day. Let us pray.